hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough, reporting from Sydney, Australia. We've just completed a multi-city tour of bringing truth to the Australian citizens. The United Australian Party, which is a new political party that's aimed to seize the balance of power, and how it works in Australia is there are multiple parties, but a small party that is strategically positioned in terms of votes can control the balance of power. This party has been the party of medical freedom. There's no doubt about it. And led by inspirational billionaire Clive Palmer. Mr. Palmer is a former member of parliament and he is a juggernaut in terms of multiple businesses, but mainly mining. Uh, mining that occurs in Australia. Australia is uh, very rich in various um, uh, extractive, uh, valuable assets, uh, namely coal and others. And he has built an empire. Uh, He's a wonderful man who wants to uh, very much uh, save Australia from its uh, grip of totalitarian thinking. Uh, What we've seen in Australia in terms of the Uh, video clips, particularly in Melbourne with these uh, brutal uh, lockdowns and then protests by by Australians and then the police state enforced on people of this country is shocking. No one could ever have imagined Australia, such a wonderful free country, uh, basically lose its entire goodness uh, as a people and as a liberal democracy. And it happened almost overnight with the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. Well, a lecture tour was organized across uh, the Gold Coast and then Melbourne and Sydney. And uh, with this, we had a terrific entourage of faculty, uh, spouses, uh, support people, logistic people. And we had the luxury of uh, traveling by private plane, Global X, uh, by uh, uh, given to us by Mr. Palmer in terms of its service and use with the wonderful pilots and staff, helicopters, uh, hotel rooms, houses. We stayed on the Palmer Resort on the Gold Coast uh, for one night. And as we moved through this journey, uh, we, we all felt temporarily like rock stars, although humbly as doctors and other professionals, we knew our role uh, is to bring truth to the Australian people and compassion. And the, um, the program consisted of Dr. Melissa McCann, who is our featured guest on the, um, uh, on the McCullough Report, this show. Melissa McCann is a general practitioner who has led a, an incredibly uh, powerful voice from the practicing doctors to the regulatory bodies on vaccine safety, what she's seen in her own practice, what she's seen in the reports from the Australian a vaccine safety system called DAEN, uh, and really just a powerful interview. Now, I did it on the Global X, which is one of the um, the, the most elite 
uh, private planes in the world. And you'll hear some hum in the background. We'll see how the technicians can potentially deal with this. But I wanted you to, uh, to, to really feel uh, the nature of, of where we were in terms of moving about the country very quickly. We went from show to show. And instead of having electric guitars over our shoulders, we had laptop computers. But uh, just for a few days, it did feel like a, a rock star. My wife said that we were doc stars. And Melissa McCann certainly is a doc star. Uh, Dr. Pierre Corey was with us, well known to the McCullough Report audience, a pulmonary critical care doctor who led uh, and has continued to lead the FLCCC. John Leake, true crime author and my co-author of the book Courage to Face COVID-19. Uh, John uh, was thrust into the role of being a public speaker and uh, to outline for us what's happening from a historical, philosoph uh, philosophical, and geopolitical perspective uh, and describing clearly to Australians what the biopharmaceutical complex really is, what does it mean, and how does it have such a powerful grip over the Australian people. And then I was the closer, and our audience knows me well, and, um, and I outlined five COVID truths. The first one being that there's no asymptomatic spread, uh, essentially. It's always spread from symptomatic to susceptible person. Uh, and in that uh, data showing that uh, public masking uh, is of little of no value, that there should be no asymptomatic testing because if people can't spread it asymptomatically, we should only test when the um, people have acute symptoms and the test is used as a diagnostic aid in making a diagnosis of SARS-CoV-2 infection, COVID-19 syndrome. Number three, that natural immunity is protective against severe outcomes on a second and third infection, namely hospitalization and death. Number four, that the illness has always been treatable. Early treatments have been advanced. No single drug is necessary nor sufficient, but we need drugs in combination. Uh, many doctors have their preferred drug, no doubt about it. Ivermectin would be a preferred drug among a group of drugs that would be used by Dr. Corey. Um, uh, uh, versatile, I've used a wide range of drugs, probably a, a greater range of drugs than any doctor in the early treatment movement. So I feel even more flexible and powerful in my ability to treat patients. And then finally, uh, that the vaccines are not sufficiently safe and effective and there are calls across the world to remove the vaccines from the market. Uh, we're moving today uh, to a meeting with members of parliament and I'm excited to fly on the Global X to uh, Canberra, Australia, south of Sydney, where we will go through um, a series of discussions with members of parliament and uh, there make the case and begin to advance this awakening uh, to, uh, to cr critical leaders in Australia that there's been a, a horrible mistake made with advancing the vaccines in such a um, stringent manner across the population. They recently announced a, yet a fifth shot for Australians. Uh, the vast majority of individuals in Australia have been fully vaccinated and they've gotten COVID in the setting of being fully vaccinated. Australian, Australia, in terms of percent of the population as vaccine failures, may be as high as any population that exists in the world since the wave of COVID-19 hit the country uh, late. We're going to finish our tour uh, meeting with some prominent doctors, one being Dr. Robert Clancy, who's known to be the most expert doctor uh, in the, on the issue of the nasopharyngeal microbiome and its uh, immune protective state. Then hopefully with Thomas, Dr. Thomas Barodi, 
who uh, was the original inventor of uh, triple therapy for Helicobacter pylori. He's played a critical role in pandemic response. He's been a co-author on papers regarding uh, ivermectin in combination treatment, particularly those who are severely hypoxemic. And then we'll be heading back to the United States. Uh, Many of you know that um, I am moving from a large group practice at a major medical center to a private, um, completely uh, independent practice 30 miles north of Dallas uh, in McKinney, Texas, joining uh, COVID-19 hero and early treatment uh, academic physician, Dr. Brian Proctor. And so I'm going to be thrilled to be a cardiovascular unit within uh, a leading academic uh, family practice in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So I'll have a physical presence. So this has been really a wonderful set of uh, developments. We've seen back home that in the United States, uh, U.S. congressional hearings have been held now on uh, vaccine safety with Twitter and censorship. Uh, Congresswoman Nancy Mace has come out and revealed that she is vaccine injured. Uh, this is uh, a very important development that we have a member of Carl, a par- of a member of Congress firsthand who's seen what's uh, happened with the vaccines. Uh, I plan to reflect this back here in Australia as we have more uh, members of Parliament and senators who are recognizing this. I can tell you that Senator Ralph ba- uh, Babbitt and Senator Malcolm Roberts. Uh, I've had personal discussions with them. They clearly understand the gravity of COVID-19 vaccines and what uh, they are doing in terms of uh, injuries, disabilities, and deaths in the population. Uh, I finished uh, with an observation now, and it's being seen all over the world, a very disturbing observation, that all-cause mortality is going up everywhere. In Australia, through September of 2022, there's an excess of 18,000 deaths that shouldn't have happened. And uh, the explanation is death from unknown causes. Uh, Given that the authorities claim 95% of Australians have taken the vaccine, have been fully vaccinated, it is the vaccine until proven otherwise, all-cause mortality should go down after a population emerges from a pandemic. It's called the culling effect, meaning that vulnerable people, in fact, lost their lives during a deadly pandemic uh, seniors, nursing home patients, uh, others who are vulnerable. And so therefore, with that culling, that all-cause mortality should drop. But if all-cause mortality goes up, that means that death across age groups has gone up. And that's indeed what we've seen uh, in multiple uh, countries across the world. In fact, every country that I'm aware of that's been heavily vaccinated, all-cause mortality is increased. This is extremely disturbing since the COVID-19 vaccine syndromes that are published in the peer-reviewed literature have been fatal, including myocarditis, acceleration of cardiovascular disease, arrhythmic sudden death, aortic dissection, neurologic syndromes, including uh, intracranial hemorrhage and stroke, Guillain-Barre syndrome, uh, which after has occurred after messenger RNA vaccines and is fatal, Uh, hematologic syndromes, blood clotting, uh, multiple papers demonstrating fatal blood clots, uh, deep venous thrombosis and pulmonary embolism in the fully vaccinated. And then immunologic syndromes, one of the ones that's uh, notable and has its own name is vaccine-induced thrombotic thrombocytopenic uh, purpurea. And that is actually a blood disorder where there's both bleeding and clotting 
at the same time, a very low platelet count and about a third of cases are fatal. Finally, another immunologic syndrome, multi-system inflammatory disorder, MISC, is also fatal in some cases. So if the peer-reviewed literature demonstrates proven fatal syndromes with COVID-19 vaccines, the population has been heavily vaccinated and now all-cause mortality is increased. It's a straight line chain of logic that the COVID-19 vaccines are responsible for an increase in all-cause mortality. What we need across all countries is a merging of the vaccine adverse, uh, the vaccine, uh, adverse event data systems, the uh, vaccine administration systems, and then mortality systems. In the United States, we, we know who's taken a vaccine in this country. Our government holds the uh, database, and we also know who's died in the country. Now, there's a lag in deaths, but now there's a sufficient uh, amount of time where we can clearly assess, certain, certainly through 2021, and probably now in 2022, whether or not those who died were fully vaccinated, when they took the vaccines, what brand, what dose, and what lot number, that important data analytic project needs to happen, and it needs to happen ASAP. Until that time, I do believe the safest and most conservative approach is until proven otherwise. Check out the uh, mini documentary I did with Dr. Asim Malhotra on this. It's called until proven otherwise, and we give the rationale for that, uh, you know, according to the interpretation and opinion of two leading cardiologists, myself in the United States and Dr. Malhotra in the United Kingdom. Well, let's move on to this riveting interview that we did at 30,000 feet in the Global X, generously sponsored by uh, uh, Australian billionaire Clive Palmer and the United Australian Party. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Make sure you go to our website and check the banner bars. The banner bars to the sponsors, when you click on them, automatically give you a discount on products. I like especially Healthy Cell REM Sleep Supplement for a great night's sleep. I took it last night. No wonder I feel so good today. Check out Healthy Cell and go to our website, Banner Bar, to get a discount off your first purchase. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years, but our diet and the way we eat has, creating an environment in your mouth for bacteria to wreak havoc on your teeth and gums. For better oral health, get Spry Dental Defense an oral care line designed to combat acid-creating bacteria. The toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and gum all contain xylitol, a natural ingredient shown to dramatically improve oral health. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural retailers. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I can't tell you what's going on right now, but I'm going to. I'm on a Global X, and we're jetting across Australia. We're on a nationwide tour sponsored by the United Australian Party. And it is a tremendous pleasure to welcome to the microphone here at 30,000 feet over Australia, Dr. Melissa McCann. 
Dr. McCann received her Bachelor's of Pharmacy at the University of South Australia. She went on to receive her MBBS, which is the equivalent of a medical degree, uh, at the uh, uh, University of Notre Dame in Western Australia. And then she uh, achieved what in Australia is considered a fellowship of um, a general practice and there went into rural practice and she is in White Sunday Region Island. It's in North Queensland. Her service area is about 25,000. Her town that she lives in is 3,000. And she's in a group practice of 10 other general practitioners and there's no subspecialists. They manage everything in the region. I did that myself uh, for three years after I finished my fellowship. I was stationed in Northern Michigan, so I know what it's like to be, in a sense, always in the critical hot seat, being an edge decision maker uh, as a doctor in medicine. And let me tell you, when it comes to COVID-19, Dr. McCann has really taken this country by storm. She holds it in her hand. And I want her to tell the story of what she started to see in her patients. And then you know what she did? She went to the TGA, the Therapeutics Good Administration, which is the FDA equivalent in the United States. And I'll let her take it from there. Dr. McCann, welcome to the McCullough Report. Thank you so much, Dr. McCullough. Um, it's been an absolute privilege to meet you and to meet Pierre and um, just this such a wonderful event that's being sponsored by the United Australia Party. It's really the first of its kind in Australia. We've been a little bit, um, I would say almost a couple of years behind the US the whole way through. So we really sat back and watched the pandemic as it spread out through the US and through internationally. And um, for us, we really didn't have many cases until late uh, 21. And uh, we really haven't had events like this. So we haven't had in any large forum doctors speaking out. And so I think this has just been such an exciting thing for patients in Australia who um, I think are having a lot of hope from feeling like there actually are a lot of doctors. Um, and it's uh, definitely not just myself. Um, there are a lot of doctors who've been talking about these things and um, I think really trying to get the message out there. Well, let me set the stage. Billionaire, iconic, self-made juggernaut, Clive Palmer in Australia, who honestly is probably bigger than any one of the major wealth uh, people that we know about in the United States, uh, himself was a member of parliament. He is somebody who wanted to change politics in Australia. He had positioned a new party, the United Australian Party, which will be positioned almost as a third party as we consider in the United States between the Republicans and the Democrats, but actually controlling the balance of power, which is such a incredibly important political strategy. But this party and their leadership that's sponsoring our tours are clearly awake and they understand that things have not gone right during the pandemic. Dr. McCann, what were some of your first observations in practice where you knew something was going wrong? I would say I started to have some questions with the way that um, I guess some of the decision making around things like lockdowns. Um, in Australia, we had really lengthy, quite strict lockdowns. Um, personally, in my rural area, we were not impacted by that as much as, um, for example, states like Victoria and towns like Melbourne. Um, it was really, 
I think for people that live there, it's hard, um, even when they describe what that experience was like, it's hard for someone who hasn't lived through that to understand. Um, people who live through the lockdowns in Melbourne, they get really quite emotional and it, it seems to me that it was actually quite a traumatic experience. Um, there were curfews, they literally weren't able to leave their home. Um, and there was a lot of, I think, mental, mental illness as well as financial and other impacts from that. So um, I guess that concerned me initially. I thought, look, how is this going to impact on health? Um, and, and, and I suppose who's making these decisions? Who's, how are we coming up with what's a benefit versus a risk across the whole population when um, some of these decisions were clearly had the potential to impact really negatively uh, on the health of large members of the population? Were you ever consulted by authorities? You know, you and your group are kind of the only group in a large region. Were you ever consulted regarding what should be done with the onset of the pandemic? Uh, that's funny you should ask that. It's the only time there was ever consultation uh, came at a meeting just before mandates were to be widely implemented in Queensland. Um, and they were really quite extensive and strict mandates in Queensland. Uh, you couldn't go into a coffee shop, you couldn't go into a restaurant, uh, you, you really couldn't live or work, to be honest, if you weren't vaccinated. And so there was a meeting perhaps two months before that was to, um, to, to commence. And that was a meeting where uh, there was a number of politicians who were sort of traveling down the coast of Queensland. And um, it certainly wasn't asking our anybody's opinion on that. Uh, it seemed to me that the meeting was really to encourage um, businesses who had any degree of influence, I suppose, to be encouraging their staff and their customers to take the vaccine. So, um, yeah, I guess that was my only sort of face-to-face -face consultation process with uh, anyone that was in a political position. So the strategy was lockdown, take away freedoms and privileges in order to effectively force the vaccine on the population. This is something we really didn't have in the United States. We had some employers saying they had to take the vaccine and then there were exemptions and then the military and then exemptions in fights. I think the US military was the worst for us, but we didn't see widespread job loss. Did you see this firsthand where people said, listen, I can't take the vaccine or I don't wanna take it. And you saw them lose their job? Oh, absolutely. I think it was, it's hard to even, um, you know, put into words the impact that that had on patients. Um, it was extremely widespread and, and certainly it seemed to me that the mandates were quite deliberately being positioned as a, a reward, I suppose, that once we reached 70% and then it was 75, 80, 85, then a border would be opened because at that time you, you actually couldn't travel freely from one state to another. And that had a huge impact on people whose um, spouse worked in another state or families were separated or couldn't see each other when they were severely unwell, examples like that. And um, yeah, so um, yeah, so it wasn't actually a massive impact. So in Australia, during this severe time, you couldn't travel from one state to another. Couldn't drive from, you know, New York State to Pennsylvania to see your grandmother. This is extraordinary. What was the rationale? Do you think the virus stopped at state lines or, 
or uh, you know what was what was explained to the people of Australia why this had to be the case why draw a line at certain borders behind states I mean I, I can't see any medical rationale for this I think the justification was that some states had more cases than others and so by um, locking down one state it might stop the spread to another state um, but what it meant was that different different states within Australia had a very I suppose unequal and different experience and it probably did make everyone yeah quite fearful of having people travel freely from one state to another in case the virus was brought to our area and then that would mean extending these lockdowns further and so it was divisive I would say to me it was almost intentionally divisive that this was uh, in a sense uh, an opening blow of the government taking uh, an extraordinary grab at power and control over the Australian people and I understand that that extent of grabbing power extended right into medical practice that doctors in Australia were severely affected by a new government tactic to seize power and freedoms from doctors. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's that's exactly what happened, Dr. McCullough. It was it was quite early in 2021 where APRA, which is essentially the regulator over all of the not just the medical boards but also the nursing boards, paramedic, all medical practitioners, um, all uh, allied health pro um, professionals as well, and um, that was a really clear instruction that any uh, even conversation, um, certainly any social media posting, anything at all that was that could be construed as negative to the vaccination program could result in uh, what they termed regulatory action. So that would mean suspension or potentially deregistration. And I saw that. I, I know of colleagues, I've seen their letters from APRA, the regulator, uh, that literally state your, your conduct is being investigated and you are suspended um, because we've received this, this complaint or this anonymous complaint from somebody and they've um, told us that you discussed uh, concerns about the safety of the vaccines or something like that. So it, it was happening, it was a real threat. Uh, and I think that really interfered with the doctor-patient relationship. And I've often reflected that had that not happened, I think this pandemic would have played out very differently. Um, because I suppose in Australia, we did have the advantage of being able to observe what was happening in other countries. Um, we got to observe all of the, the different impacts, the pros and cons, I suppose, of, of the different measures that the government was taking. And I think in family medicine in particular, there's an enormous amount of trust. And when patients come in, um, in the privacy of the consult room, had GPs, and certainly I don't think all GPs um, by any means would have been suggesting that people not take the vaccine, absolutely not. But I think a more balanced discussion maybe with their pregnant patients or with their patients with um, autoimmune disease where maybe not as much information was available on the vaccine, that they may have been able to speak more freely about the benefits and risks in that individual patient who they knew well. Um, and of course that couldn't happen and not only could that not happen, but we had this extremely um, almost unbearable position of facing our patients who were, you know, I, I had weeks there when these mandates were about to be rolled out 
where patients would just walk into the room, sit down on the chair and just burst into tears. And they would just sit there and, and sob and they would and then they would stay then they would sort of stop and say i know you can't do anything about this but i'm about to lose my job i'm i don't want to take this vaccine um, the mandates were there was no way around them even if even if a doctor thought that an exemption might apply for a medical reason um, doctors literally had their practices uh, raided and notes taken and confiscated and they were deregistered if they were identified as a doctor who was giving uh, exemptions in a scenario in a situation where an exemption was not allowed and uh, what the what the public health officials or the decision making was at first there was absolutely no medical reason for an exemption and that included if you'd previously had a severe reaction to the vaccine so people who had even already been injured were forced to have a second vaccine to finish the course and there was just no leeway at all for um for providing exemptions and i that was something that i really found extremely difficult that these patients were having to choose between uh, being able to continue working feed their families um, or take a vaccine that for whatever reason they didn't want to have and it is our it is in our code of conduct that we support our patients rights to their own healthcare decisions so for me this was just intolerable This sounds so much worse than it's been in the United States. We had heartbreaking situations as well, uh, but, but doctors did write exemptions and we stood behind them. We did have medical board reviews and we um, fought against them. But this is, uh, this is a grip, a dark grip of terror over the medical system in Australia. Good Australian doctors, very talented, now being pitted uh, with this horrible forced complicity on the doctors. Well, you've told the story in this lecture series as we've gone across the nation about what you did. So tell us what you did and these first steps where you as a young, beautiful Irish-Australian doctor said, I'm not going to take any more. Tell us what happened. Yeah, well, I think the first the first step for me, um, uh, once I'd put everything together and thought I have to do something, um, was around the end of 21. And at that stage, we'd only really just started to see COVID cases. And I suppose it was more about the vaccine. So um, the mandates were being heavily implemented and it was about a month away from almost universal mandates across Queensland. So. Um, and I had started to observe within my own practice a pattern of adverse events that was completely different to um, anything that I'd seen before. And so in general practice in Australia, um, GPs do probably the majority of childhood vaccines. So, And I, I'd lived in this area for uh, 11 years and I knew my patients well and I had, I guess, a fairly regular patient cohort. It's not really like the hospital, I guess, where you don't get to see patients for follow-up. Um, I knew them well and, you know, every two-month-old, four-month-old, six-month, 12, 18, four-year-old vaccines, constantly, every every day. Um, the flu vaccines for all of our patients, of course, we were, of course, like any doctor, extremely encouraging and um, and pro-vaccine, if you can if you can say that. And um, and then once the then once more patients were starting to have the vaccine in Queensland as we got close to mandates, 
Um, they're adverse events that were clearly in a temporal relationship with the vaccine. So people would come in, they had a blood clot, and it was like, oh, by the way, I, I had the vaccine three days ago and, and then a miscarriage. And it's like, okay, and could this be related to the vaccine? I had it last week. And, and this was just, at first, you know, you might see a couple of these and think, okay, maybe I'm just noticing it more. Uh, maybe I'm just carefully watching for this because it's a new product. And, um, and then other colleagues amongst the practice. And, and I must say, these things, of course, were fairly difficult to talk about. It's not the case that we would all just sit down and openly discuss this. There was, it was very real, actually, that element of fear of, of open discussion. Um, but I think from our practice, we have a, a really um, dedicated and caring group of doctors. And, and so they did start to share and say, I've, I've seen this as well. And, and I just had this patient today. And, and by about the end of November 21, um, just within our practice, myself and another doctor were chatting and um, said, I wonder if we should do our own informal practice audit. This week, we've seen four cases of confirmed myocarditis. And, you know, then the rates had been quoted at sort of one in a million. So maybe the whole region should have had one case. For one, you know, GP clinic amongst that whole area, how was it even possible to be seeing this many? And so I did that and um, did an informal sort of audit of rates of some of those adverse events such as clots, strokes and myocarditis. Um, and there was a clear increase that could be seen from previous years. And, um, and I hadn't looked at that stage onto the um, TGA's adverse event database in a few months. I'd initially looked at that when the product was first released and I noticed already a few, um, you know, quite a number of severe adverse events, but it had been a while since I'd, since I'd looked at it. And um, there was a reported death in a 14-year-old um, and there were quite a number of cardiac arrests in teenagers and this just really worrying adverse event reports. and. With pharmacy as a background, I knew a little bit about adverse event reporting and um, and that these types of uh, reports was not the norm. This was re really a, a pattern that I wouldn't have expected, both on the database and then what I was seeing myself. So that prompted me to um, literally that day sit down and, and write a letter to the um, head of the TGA, John Skerritt, and also to Minister Hunt, and to describe what I had seen within my practice and outline, I suppose, my experience and um, you know that I've been a GP in this rural area and what I was seeing, and then also highlighting what was reported onto the Dane database. And um, I requested at that time a suspension of the program and a review of the safety issues. And I, I felt then that that was required. And, um, and to be honest, I thought, uh, maybe I was naive enough that I thought that might even happen. Um, and I shared that letter with some online, um, like a large closed group of GPs. Um, there's about 9,000 GPs on that forum. And, um, you know, it was not the popular view, I suppose, that uh, I, I got a lot of comments. I had a lot of doctors, um, I suppose, giving the same lines as what public health officials were giving, that if we were seeing adverse events, that that had to be weighed against the severe risks of COVID, um, which is fair enough, and um, and that these things were most likely coincidental, and, and some of them hadn't seen these adverse events either. And anyway, the purpose of sharing that was just to maybe start a conversation amongst doctors and to see if anybody wanted to sort of co-sign that letter. And, um, and no one did, so I said that by myself, but actually I had a lot of doctors 
privately contact me and say, well, I am worried about this and I am seeing this, but I'm sorry, I just can't sign that letter with you because I'm afraid of the consequences of APRA. And, um, but thank you for what you're doing. And I think this is really important. And I've seen this, this and this. So I guess from that very first point, I knew that no matter what, um, I was correct in the observations that I was making. And so this had to be said and, and said again and again and again. <laughs> Let's take a pause right here. And we'll be back on the other side of the McCullough Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. AmericaOutloud.com. Seven amazing years. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty. America Out Loud Talk Radio. The liberty and justice for all. Well, you're hearing the news about the convergence of influenza, respiratory syncytial virus, and now SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, hitting at the same time in some households. Uh, Most of these conditions are mild, but they are bothersome. People have fever, cough, congestion, uh, respiratory symptoms, and one of the best ways to safeguard your home is with the Genesis Fogger. The Genesis Fogger uses HOCL, that is a safe disinfectant. Uh, It is virucidal. It kills the virus in the air and on surfaces. It creates a dry mist. You can use it to sterilize certain rooms, sterilize bathrooms particularly, and I think every household should have it. So go to America Out Loud website, go to the banner bar and click on Genesis Fogger to get a discount on your purchase. And you're going to need it because the first purchase involves the uh, unit itself and then you'll get a box of the liquid that's used inside. It's diluted in water and that's basically the supply. And you're given a, a, a real good number of bottles that'll last you a long time. But go ahead and pick up the discount on the first purchase when you go to our banner bar on America Out Loud and that's the Genesis Fogger. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. Let's get real, let's get loud. On America Out Loud Talk Radio, this is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. We're on the backside of a riveting interview with Dr. Melissa McCann. You hear the hum in the background. We're on the Global X. I've never lived like this before. As I'm working with top doctors, uh, political leaders, business executives across the country, bringing truth to Australia about pandemic response. And we have covered so much. Dr. McCann, what I wanna know next is, you took these bold steps. You wrote the uh, TGA. Uh, you have the the threat of the Physician Oversight Board, AFRA. 
you organized doctors, you communicated with them. What did you hear back from Dr. John Skerritt at the TGA once you started this dialogue, which was a relatively formal dialogue with your background as someone who has expertise in pharmacology and drug safety? What were the responses? Yes, so Dr. McCullough, it was a really disappointing response, actually. Um, I honestly thought that maybe um, there would be the start of some open discussion, um, taking the concerns that I was raising really seriously. Um, But instead, I got back a a dismissive letter that basically said, um, young people die from cardiac arrest every year, and so therefore we would expect to see reports of deaths on the database, and um, essentially coincidence. And of course, that, Really at that point, I think I, I really lost faith in the ability of the TGA to monitor adverse events because there was just no um, discussion about causality, how that's determined or, or how it was being determined in these individual cases. Um, it was just basically saying, well, well, there's a background rate of cardiac arrest. If we're vaccinating everyone, of course there'll be cardiac arrests. Um, but from, I guess, even just, I mean, I'm not an expert in statistics, but from a statistical analysis, it's a, it's a probability of those two things occurring in a close temporal relationship with each other. So, you know, sure, there's 100 to 150 cardiac arrests, say, each year in young people, but if there's a population of, say, you know, 5 million young people, then maybe that's, maybe that's a 1 in 10,000 chance any week of a young person dying suddenly and unexpectedly. And then if, uh, say, 1 in 100 of those are having a vaccine, then it's sort of a multiplication of odds that those two things would coincide in the same week purely due to chance. And so you're looking at sort of one in a million odds for this event, and then to see multiple cases of those events like cardiac arrests on the database, well, what's the odds that that's going to happen multiple times? Um, you know, that, that, it's had, that, that someone's had this unexpected cardiac arrest and they happen to have had a vaccine a week or two beforehand. It just didn't make sense to me. Anytime there is a new medicinal product and something happens, and in U.S. regulatory practice, if a data safety monitoring board or a new drug development program with sponsors and oversight would consider anything within 30 days to be attributed to the administration of the new product because that's a safe and conservative approach. And it sounds like you were discussing case vignettes uh, by correspondence with Dr. Skerritt at the TGA in things that were really closely related temporally. And the response was dismissive. That in fact, it's just, no, we're gonna dismiss this out of hand. What were your next steps? Well, yes, I was a bit, I suppose, fired up at that point and I decided, I'd pretty much decided that if my career ended at that point, I was I was comfortable with that. So um, I did a lot from that point on. Um, first, I wrote to the, uh, the ombudsman for the health practitioner. Uh, I thought, well, I'll make a complaint about APRA before they make one about me. Um, so I wrote to them and I said that this direction from APRA has the potential to impact on the doctor-patient relationship and also stops us from being able to adhere to our code of ethics. And so, um, 
yeah, so I made a complaint to them for whatever it was worth. Actually, I first got a response to say, um, thank you for your you know, complaint and we'll be in touch within the next two weeks for the next steps. And I thought, wow, maybe maybe something changes here. Maybe this ends here. Uh, then I got an email a couple of weeks later from someone else uh, within the Ombudsman Department and they said, um, we're not going to take any further action on this because APRA's instruction was in keeping with the national plan, which just sounded so Orwellian and um, it surprised me, I guess, that I, that I didn't get any response there either because I thought the points that I was making that APRA was giving a direction that contradicted our code of ethics, uh, again, I just thought that that would have been taken more seriously. Um, and then the vaccines actually were soon to be approved and rolled out from five years old. And I was so worried about that, just seeing uh, patient after patient with you know, chest pain and myocarditis and seeing how high the rates were. So I actually wrote to the Attorney General as well. I wrote to the uh, Human Rights Commissioner. I started contacting some politicians who'd been discussing some of these, um, you know, some of these issues. I made a privacy complaint. Um, because I thought the privacy aspects in regards to people having to hand over their private medical information, um, you know, to a young person working at a cafe, there's literally large bodies of legislation that protect the immunisation record and people were being expected to just show that to some poor shop assistant out the front. It was, it, to me, it just left so many... Um, possibilities for further repercussions for business owners who were trying to do the right thing um, but were potentially leaving themselves open to privacy complaints and human rights complaints and it didn't seem to me that the government was taking that risk seriously and some of these business owners were also my patients and they were struggling with being forced to I suppose enforce these um, you know these decisions that the government was making um, and then who next? So, well, well, then I wrote actually again um, four months later. So that was in March of 22, again to John Skerritt and the Health Minister Hunt. And I provided, I guess, some more detail of um, some of the evidence for these adverse events, including at that stage, there was a published uh, autopsy uh, publication of two young teenagers who had died of myocarditis and it was clear that that was the cause for it and the, the autopsy findings and just a range of other um, potential risks from the vaccines. By that stage, um, some of the great work from the US team who had got some of the FDA documents released, some of this was available and this showed um, that early Pfizer, you know, post-marketing experience and the range of serious adverse events. And also on the TGA disclosure log, someone had obtained some of the non-clinical um, approval data. And there was just so many, uh, I think, issues within that and so many concerning, um, you know, in my opinion, so many concerning findings in the early animal studies. And so I wrote a letter and just summarized all of that. And I reached out to a lot of these doctors that I'd made contact with over the past six months. And that time, actually, 14 other doctors uh, from various specialties, uh, emergency department doctors and, um, and other specialists, they were um, you know, willing to co-sign with me. And so I felt like, okay, this time I'm sending back another letter and I'm outlining these concerns again. And despite all of the difficulties for doctors to speak out, here's uh, over a dozen doctors who are taking that step. And so again, I thought that maybe that would be taken seriously. 
Wow, this is tremendous. This is a gripping story. You know what was going on at the same time in the United States? We had what's called the Global COVID Summit. We had 17,000 doctors sign on the line and say, no, these vaccines aren't safe. We had Linda Wastila and Peter Doshi from the University of Maryland uh, put in official letters into our FDA to not have these be fully approved. The nurses did the same thing. We had U.S. Senate testimony hearings where the doctors came up and challenged our public health officials. And then we had every single FDA meeting, we had patient advocates and doctors giving the counterbalance argument. And we didn't make any progress either. The vaccines kept rolling out and then it really fell into the domain of the public despite our advocacy efforts. Do you think your efforts and the publicity around your efforts started to gain traction among the people of Australia? More broadly, I would say probably no, because um, I suppose with censorship, there wasn't a lot of publicity amongst the colleagues that, that um, I was in contact with. And, um, you know, I think that did gain some attention and, and I suppose discussion amongst colleagues. But more broadly, no, it wasn't like the US because we just didn't have those organisations who were openly speaking at that stage. Um, but I have to say, Dr. McCullough, that what I was seeing from yourself, from doctors in the US, from doctors, um, just like you say, signing these types of letters, for really just watching from a distance, that's actually a huge part of what gave me the confidence to just keep persisting, knowing that what I was doing was right, whether or not um, whether or not there was any positive or negative attention to that, just quietly chipping away, um, seeing the number of doctors um, and nurses around the world who were talking about these things, um, that just gave me so much confidence. So I've, I've got to say, watching what all of your team and yourself were doing, um, that was everything. Well, in this final segment of the interview, I want you to highlight this incredible COVID vaccine conference series that's been organized and conducted across the wonderful country of Australia. Uh, you know, you're the lead. So you're up there. All eyes are on you. The eyes of the nation are on you. What does it feel like to be a public figure and, and give some uh, a color to this? What, what are you seeing in terms of the crowd, the engagement and, uh, and the excitement as we, in a sense, jet across the country, bringing a message of truth? Oh, it's been absolutely amazing. I think, um, yeah, I probably um, hadn't known much about the United Australia Party or even about Clive Palmer, actually. Um, but this has just been the most amazing, positive experience to meet with uh, his team. And I think you can judge a lot by the people who work with you within your own team. Well, I feel that way as a, as a business owner, that my team is everything. And to have met these group of just genuine, beautiful, caring people who, um, you know, no matter what the, the media or the political games have thrown over the years, that this group and this team is just 100% about caring about Australians and what can be done to right some of these wrongs. So it's been just such a privilege to, to see that and to see that there are people in a position of power and authority who are using that to do something positive for these patients who are suffering. Um, and so it's just been such a um, 
positive, beautiful experience. It's been, I think, a little bit overwhelming because I haven't been in the public at all. Um, but with all of the many other things that I'm doing behind the scenes, I guess I knew at some point, um, not that I was deliberately being quiet about any of these things by any means, but that that, that eventually there would be um, publicity and that if anything, that's a positive thing because all of the people that have been coming along to these events, um, I've just seen so much hope and optimism and um, they are just so grateful that somebody is saying out loud the truth and um, that they feel like there, there are people who are trying to fight um, for what's right and to get the truth out there. So it's been a real privilege. Now, last night we were in Markula. And I tell you what, for Americans, if you've never heard of Markula, it's on what's considered the, the, the Gold Coast, the Sunshine Coast. If you look in Australia, look at a map, find Brisbane. And I tell you, up and down from there, it's beautiful. There's protected waterways. It kind of reminds me of a blend of Florida or the islands off of Georgia. Uh, it's absolutely fantastic. But last night, we had a program, a ticketed program. It was packed. There was 1,200 people there. Every seat was full. It seemed like the air of excitement, uh, uh, but there was, there, was, there was a tension there. I felt tension. What was it like at the intermission when people came up to you and they wanted to meet you? Oh, that was completely overwhelming. Um, yeah, it was it was amazing. I could just see how desperately people wanted to connect and talk about their experience and what had happened and also just how thankful they were, how grateful they were for the event, for for people speaking out about this. Um, I had doctors coming up to me who I'd, um, who I'd communicated with, some who'd even signed their letters with me. Um, so it was amazing to meet them face to face. I had um, quite a number of injured patients that I'd spoken with by email or connected with or whose story I knew. And um, to see them face to face and they were just great, grateful and happy and hopeful um, from the event and what was happening. Um, and then I had so many other injured patients come up to me who who I hadn't um, heard from or connected with previously and who told just some of the most devastating stories of, of what had happened um, to them. And um, it was just, I suppose it just highlighted again how important this is, how many people are suffering and so how many have been suffering in silence um, and just how important these conversations are. Wow, this is unbelievable. It's mind-blowing, really, what's happening. Now, what are the outcomes of this? Have people come up to you and said, you know what, I've seen enough. I'm not taking any more of these vaccines. I'm going to find a different way of navigating forward. Have they come up and said that? And are there data to suggest that the tide is turning in uh, Australia? Is there any suggestion in governmental bodies that the government will start to change? And the, again, the tide will turn with respect to moving forward and um, deferring on more vaccination? I think the tide is definitely turning. I mean, when you look at the, the figures for how many vaccine doses are given, there's definitely a drop. It does seem like so many people either themselves have had an injury or know someone who has, and it is absolutely making people reluctant. And, and I think people are talking about it more as well. So I think there's 
there's definitely been a change in the sentiment. Um, certainly not with everyone and um, and I think perhaps not with the government. Um, there's just been the approval of the of the fifth vaccine actually and the encouragement of that from Ataji within Australia. And um, to me that's, uh, that's mind boggling, but that is what has been approved here. And I think it's it's a really difficult situation. It's I think we are going to all have to work together to um, to really drive what direction we go to from here. Because whilst the mandates have been dropped, the way that the government, I suppose, has dropped them is that it's been placed back onto the shoulders of the businesses and employers. So it's sort of been a, the um, wording of the. Um, official uh, instructions I suppose has been to say all right well officially we're dropping mandates from a from a state perspective um, but naturally all employers have the option to continue to enforce them and there's quite a number of businesses and employers um, who perhaps are well-meaning and think that they're doing the right thing perhaps to protect their staff or their customers and they are continuing to enforce these mandates so that's a huge issue I still know quite a number of colleagues who um, have either been suspended or um, are no longer working because of mandates and they are not back in their work yet and I think the other issue is is that all of the uh, public health legislation that allowed for that power, as you mentioned at the start, this enormous amount of power that um, the politicians, I suppose, have, is uh, that legislation is all still in place. And some of it has even been strengthened um, to quite explicitly allow for forced vaccination uh, in a public health crisis. So that really worries me that that uh, those acts of parliament, though that legislation allows for this to continue or reoccur uh, and for something like those widespread enforced mandates to be implemented again um, and I find that a real worry because I don't think um, I don't think the battle if, if we call it that is is anywhere near over yet well we're gonna have to leave it there that was absolutely a terrific interview we've t been talking to dr. Melissa McCann general practitioner and medical leader from the northern part of Australia. You've heard in the background the hum of the Global X uh, generously provided to us by uh, uh, Mr. Clive Palmer, former members of parliament. Wonderful entourage. You've heard the clinking of uh, coffee cups. Uh, so this is, uh, uh, I'll ask my audience to um, endure this. Uh, I do have to say we're drinking the best coffee, having the best food. We're being well treated, but boy, are we working hard getting across the country, no breaks, every minute, bringing our message to the Australians. I've been wanting to do this for three years. I've had a chance to meet friends, doctors, people across social media, and we've asked them to download the app for America Out Loud Talk Radio and submit their questions, and then they'll be curated. Uh, Malcolm Out Loud, voice of the nation, he will be curating these uh, both he and I have a fondness for Australia. We've both been here now multiple times, and we haven't heard the last from America Out Loud Talk Radio and the struggles here in Australia. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report.